With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. service offering where I work with a product or service provider to help you develop a message around your compliance product or service, then get that message out to the market with the widest possible scope as I have the uh, largest number of social media followers in compliance that's unaffiliated and you can sponsor my one month to a better compliance program podcast series going forward. And finally, I work with your sales team to emphasize that message and incorporate that into your sales process. If you'd like more information, please contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have with me Brandon Essig. Brandon is a recently retired AUSA who is a partner at Lightfoot, Franklin, and White, and he wrote a very interesting article in the and published in LinkedIn entitled Yates Memo Thoughts for the Compliance Professional. The scope of risk may be broader than you think. And Brandon was a AUSA uh, assistant uh, U.S. attorney when the Yates memo was released. And he talks about the investigative triage effect the Yates memo has on uh, the uh, AUSAs and DOJs when they take a look at it. It's very interesting because he takes a look at this from the prosecutorial point of view, not something that we typically hear in conjunction with the Yates memo. The episode comes in at uh, just around 20 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, this is Tom Fox, and welcome to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today we have a very interesting guest, Brandon Essig. Brandon is a partner at Lightfoot, Franklin, and White. I assume that's in Birmingham, Brandon? That is correct, Tom. And he wrote a very interesting piece that um, I got uh, on LinkedIn called Yates Memo, Thoughts for the Compliance Professional. The scope of risk may be broader than you think. And I read it. It really had some interesting insights. Uh, Brandon is a former federal prosecutor, so he had uh, reviewed the Yates Memo perhaps a little bit differently from certainly myself and many of the listeners. So, Brandon, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, um, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it, Tom. So um, I'd like to really just go through this article because it presents a position, not a position, but a perspective, I should say, that uh, I don't think we've seen, which is the Yates memo from the uh, Department of Justice prosecutorial side. And so I was just kind of wondering if you could walk us through how you came to find out about the Yates memo um, and what it meant for you in your day-to-day work as an assistant U.S. attorney. Sure, Tom. Yeah, so I, you know, I left the department about six months ago. Actually, I, I left right around the one-year anniversary uh, of the Yates memo. So, I, you know, I had not seen sort of the full rollout and implications of it. But, um, 
you know, the year prior when the HMO came out, um, I was a federal prosecutor in the Middle District of Alabama, which is located in Montgomery. And I was our office's lead white-collar prosecutor at the time. So obviously when memos and guidance such as the HMO are published by the department, they get pushed out to all the DOJ components, including all the field offices and all of the prosecutors and ASAs. And so because I was the white-collar prosecutor, I, of course, got the memo, um, could see right away that it was something that was going to change the approach to investigations. And then shortly after that, and actually really contemporaneously, the department uh, sort of delegated or, or tasked the U.S. Attorney's offices with sending a representative, at least one representative, from each office uh, to D.C. for training on the AIDS memo, which lasted about you know two or three days, sort of a typical CLE. Um, and so I, I attended that. That was my initial exposure to the Yates memo, and it, and it was interesting to see um, in my year left in the department after that how it sort of developed um, as my investigations went forward, particularly as related to um, any investigation that I had that involved, involved potential corporate subject or target. So one of the really interesting concepts you put forward in your um, LinkedIn post was the investigative triage effect of the Yates Memo, and I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, and what I meant by that was the Yates Memo, I think as it you know, publicly began to be commented on, and as people received it outside of the department, particularly corporate counsel and, I think, you know, outside counsel that represent corporations in the course of internal investigations, their first thought is sort of the typical investigation prosecution, you know, how they view investigations from the Department of Justice. And typically what they think about and what the Yates memo was really pointed at was when prosecutors, whether they're criminal or civil prosecutors, make the decision to bring a case on behalf of the department, that they've got to try to attempt to target individuals and hold individuals accountable in each and every investigation. So the reaction from the public, what they think about is headline-grabbing indictments, headline-grabbing, you know, civil investigations or civil complaints that get filed against either large companies or high-profile individuals. And they think about the FBI, they think about sort of the traditional investigative agencies and investigative operations of DOJ. But in my experience, as I got into my cases, that wasn't really how the Yates memo played out in my experience. How it played out in my experience, where it really became more of an issue and became more prevalent, was as I dealt with investigations of corporations that included other agencies that people don't normally think about. I mentioned in my article, OSHA, uh, the EPA, Fish and Wildlife Service, I don't think I mentioned them, but they're one of the other ones. Any entity or any investigative body that spends a lot of time regulating corporations outside of the traditional criminal or civil investigation brought by the Department of Justice. Any of those entities that have other sort of corporate oversight, those were the agencies that when we started talking about investigations from very early stages that were really attuned to the gate. Um, and in some of my cases, you know, there were ones that from the beginning you could see, you know, you could easily have a resolution against the corporate entity, either civilly or criminally. What was harder in the early stages of some of those investigations was figuring out how you were going to get to individual liability. And so as we began to triage, which is the term I used, as we began to talk about, okay, going into this investigation, if, if we have a, 
firm set of facts that we're going to discover, and we think we have a way of determining liability. If we can't indict, or if my civil counterparts in the U.S. Attorney's Office or at Maine Justice can't bring a civil suit against these people, what other remedies are there available that will allow us to meet the ends of the agency? Um, and that's where the triage effect came into play. And where I saw that and where I saw there was a way to sort of resolve some of that friction where you may not have criminal liability or organizations that have sort of robust um, Office of Inspector General uh, efforts or they have, like I used the example of the Department of Defense, all of the military agencies that are involved in some sort of procurement aspect all have administrative arms that have suspension and debarment officers and those organizations all have administrative or regulatory remedies that they can bring to bear on individuals in their organization. And they don't have the same standards of proof, uh, certainly for a criminal prosecutor. And, and in many cases, because they're administrative in, in nature, uh, their barriers to an individual enforcement action are not even as robust as, as a civil case. Um, and so as I started thinking about it and as I started thinking about my cases, and certainly when I got a, in, in private practice trying to think about for clients the perspectives to bring is that this was something that I had not seen talked about uh, and something that I don't think people were thinking about. And to me, it's a very real risk uh, associated with individuals and companies that are defending uh, investigations by DOJ. You know, that's a great point because uh, certainly in my world, in the FCPA, we only think about uh, fines and penalties and then obviously on the individual side, potential jail time. Uh, no other remedies are really ever considered, although, though, although those are available in the, in the statute and with the much broader remit of cases that you were handling, uh, you would really have uh, a large number of tools in your um, – or errors in your – arrows in your quiver – um, as a prosecutor, uh, to bring to bear against both uh, corporation and individuals, it's just um, I don't think civil practitioners are really aware of of the scope of what you can do as a prosecutor. Yeah, and I think well, and, and I think the way to think about that is to understand it's not necessarily something that I was going to do as a prosecutor. I mean, the suspension and debarment activities those aren't handled by. Uh, you know, the criminal prosecutors at DOJ typically they're not even handled by you know the civil lawyers at DOJ, who they're handled by are, are either agency counsel or, you know, for example, again, every Department of Defense entity in their procurement arm has a suspension and debarment officer and a group of sort of investigators, so to speak, that investigate uh, these cases. And so my point was is that what was unique for me after the Gates memo was that you know, it would typically be you would handle an investigation of a corporation. You would see could either you as the prosecutor or your civil counterpart bring a case against an individual or the company in general. And if you couldn't, you would just kind of close the case and move on. Um, but in my experience, after the Gates memo, there were discussions we had early on with, you know, I can't think of a specific, specific example of a DOD entity and their, you know, their OIG personnel, their internal counsel that dealt with their suspension and department people to immediately start talking about okay, look, if we end up not being able to pursue this, the Department, Department of Justice lawyers, do you guys have an option or do you guys have an ability to pursue individual enforcement actions? Um, so it's not necessarily the DOJ entity bringing it, but it's the DOJ entity 
working with the other regulators and the other administrative personnel uh, to share information um, to the extent you can and to make sure that if you're not going to go forward, because under the Yates memo, you've got to justify that. If you're not going to pursue an individual in a particular investigation, you've got to explain why. Um, and the, the, the alternative remedies that you have, whether administrative or regulatory, can help you give that justification uh, for why you're not going to pursue the case criminally against an individual. So when you have to make that explanation, is that something you have to put in writing in a memo or some other form, or is it an oral report that you would give to a superior? Yeah, no, well, the HMO requires, and well, the HMO requires that if you, if you've been provided information regarding misconduct of individuals in the course of an individual investigation, that if you're going to decide not to pursue charges against that individual, that yes, you do have to provide an in writing written justification, and the clearance is going to have to come from, uh, from the department itself. Now, again, you know, I left a year after. None of my investigations were advanced enough to the point that we could actually make those decisions um, in any of the cases that I was working on at the time. Um, but the point of my article was is that I was seeing that process in play, again, from day one um, in all of the investigations that I was handling. So let me, let me kind of flip the, the sides we're sitting on because I'm, a, as indicated, a civil side uh, lawyer. And I read the Yates memo, and I first see if I want my client to receive any double score underlined in bold uh, credit for cooperation, uh, I have to self-disclose and, as soon as practicable, turn over information on uh, individuals. So if you're sitting across the table from me, what would you expect from a, um, a white-collar defendant, uh, defense counsel coming in uh, to either make a self-disclosure or provide you with uh, information as required under the Yates memo? Yeah, I, I think the expectation is, is that you're going to truthfully disclose all of the evidence that you have regarding misconduct on the part of any individual. Um, and this is kind of the other thing that I tried to address in the article, which I think is a little bit tricky. Um, in the way the Yates memo, I mean, the Yates memo is obviously directed at criminal and civil liability in cases brought by the Department of Justice. However, that's a difficult call to make on the front end of an investigation. And it's the front end of the investigation where you've got to make a sufficient disclosure that allows you to get credit for your cooperation of the case. So, and, and the Yates memo doesn't delineate the standard that you have to use to determine whether you have a sufficient evidence of misconduct that would require disclosure to the department. So it's a little bit of a, of a difficult thing. I mean, I, I think what I would say, and my advice to clients would be, and, and when I was a prosecutor, what I would have been looking for is really an ongoing dialogue. A dialogue that one, starts as early in the case as possible. And two, as your case moves forward, whether you're getting grand jury subpoenas from me um, or from another DOJ entity, or if you're getting OIG subpoenas or something of that nature, I think most prosecutors are going to understand and expect that there's going to be a period of time where you are doing your investigation where you are fact-finding. But I think in the Yates memo, whereas before you could spend a little bit more time probably sitting back and trying to make the decision of whether or not you had the type of misconduct that would require disclosure, 
if you're weighing those factors and trying to make a yes or no decision on disclosure, I think prior to the HMO, you could probably be a little bit more conservative with your disclosure. You probably hold a little bit more close to the vest. Afterwards, I think really what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to err on the side of disclosure. Um, and I think, again, the, the HMO uses the term misconduct intentionally. Uh, and doesn't say criminal misconduct, civil misconduct, just the bare phrase misconduct. So if you've got the type of information that you don't think rises to the level of criminal liability, or maybe even not civil liability, it's some sort of misconduct that could result in you know, some other regulatory or administrative action, you certainly have got to err on the side of disclosure. Um, I, I think in the, in the post-Yates world, there's, there's a risk that is created uh, by deciding not to disclose. There's the risk that you're going you're gonna to lose that potential cooperation credit. So after I've come in and I've made my self-disclosure, I've presented my uh, initial investigative uh, report, either report or findings to you. Does uh, the substance of the Yates memo change your investigative protocol or your indeed your protocol going forward at all? beyond uh, the triage you've had to do? I, I don't think it changes the protocol. Um, I, don't, I don't think it changes the protocol at all, because at that point, I mean, you're still making assessments of individual liability. Um, I think the only thing that would be different in, in that sort of scenario is that, you know, I, I think just the discussions are, are going are gonna to be longer, and maybe the investigations uh going to last a little bit longer, because... You've really got because you you've got to take, for example, let's say you disclose a body of facts that implicates, you know, a handful of individuals. Um, you know, you then once you've got that information as the prosecutor, you you're going to have to make a under, under the Yates memo a person by person determination of what their liability is. So, I mean, the, the protocol I don't think is any different, but what I what I think counsel should expect, what lawyers should expect representing companies and individuals, is that there's got to be an ongoing dialogue uh, with the department. And I think there's going to be an expectation, or you should have an expectation, that one disclosure is not going to be enough. Uh, but there's going to be a continuing request to go back and find, and find more information and do uh, additional investigations. And, and the thing, the advice I would give is is for people representing companies, you know, if they're making disclosures regarding employees that maybe they don't represent because the employees have some potential individual liability, the recommendation I would make is that corporate counsel, whether in-house or outside counsel, be very proactive with the regulators they're dealing with in asking questions about where the investigation is going next. Uh, because it's only through that sort of discussion that you can maybe figure out and get some insight into how an individual is being triaged, so to speak, uh, to meet the hands of the gift. So in terms of uh, the long-term effects of the Yates memo, do you see um, really any long-term structural changes, or is this just a really a minor or, or rather more of a tactical change from the department's perspective, or, or is it really not? I think it is a change, and, and I think you know there's been some recent headlines that, that indicate this. I mean, again, the HMO is directed at 
criminal prosecutions and civil lawsuits, which, of course, are, are going to be public record and are going to be known about. I think if you look at the recent indictments in the Takata cases related to the airbags and the recent indictment of the Volkswagen, Volkswagen executives, right. you know, obviously those charges and the outcome of those cases were very different than, for example, the outcome of the GM cases where the company itself was charged or the myriad of financial investigations as a result of the financial crisis where you know, essentially no individuals were charged. So I think those two cases, both of which happened in January, are, are a pretty strong indicator uh, that the Yates memo has changed the outcome of some of the investigations. Now, you know, the thing, here's what I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, that's, that's a great point, uh, particularly considering the uh, GM settlement was announced in just a, a horrible coincidence the same week as the Yates memo came out. Right. And uh, right, many right. commentators, if not panned, critiqued strongly the uh, GM settlement for the exactly the reason you uh, brought up, that there were no individual indictments or prosecutions. So uh, I, I yeah, think I, Volkswagen really spoke to that. Yeah, and I think, well, I think uh, you know, honestly, I think a little bit of the GM criticisms of the department were a little bit unfair. I mean, because, as you know, I mean, the fact that the, the announcements came out the week of the memo indicated that those announcements, that, that those settlements had been negotiated, you know, well in advance of the development of the Gates memo and the publishing of the Gates sure. memo. So, you know, I think it probably would have been a little bit unfair if the department had said, look, we've been developing this policy, you guys don't even know about it, and now we're going to charge people and change the way we've been doing things. So, yeah, I think some of that was a little bit misplaced and a little bit uh, disingenuous. But I, but I think the Volkswagen and Dakota cases are evidence that things are changing. Here's the thing I expect, uh, and this is a pure prediction. This is not an insight based on any knowledge I have or anything like that. But I think with the new administration, and I think with Sessions as the Attorney General, you know, one of the things that Gates Miller doesn't really say is that you've got to disclose information about misconduct of all individual employees that are implicated in the course of the investigation. Now, what it doesn't say, though, is it doesn't require prosecutors or department personnel to make an effort to reach the highest possible level of individual misconduct and in the course of any investigation. Um, And that might be the one corollary or additional guidance that I think you could see from the new administration and with Sessions as AG is something that says something along the lines of not only do you have to determine individual misconduct, but you've got You've got to make an affirmative effort to pursue the highest levels of that misconduct or explain why you know, the supervisor or the executive above the person you've identified as having some criminal or civil liability isn't also being held accountable, you know, you know, which a- would be kind of, kind of similar to the old Ashcroft memo, which you get charged the most serious, readily provable offense. Right. That, that would be a... Um- very interesting development. I know several people have, have raised that, and I think in terms of uh, as incentives for compliance and putting best practices compliance programs in place, that is something that uh, at least many compliance commentators would see as a, a positive uh, in in the way of enforcement out of the Department of Justice. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and there's another piece of that, going back to sort of my you know, triage approach that I talk about, I mean, and I, and I think, again, what they might say is, look, you know, this triage effect, and that may be another way that it comes into play, is as you go up the chain, and, and I think in most investigations it's typical, but as you go up the chain, the individual knowledge and responsibility 
does become less and less. Um, but I think it's going to be those higher levels of supervision over criminal and civil wrongdoers where this triage effect may come into play, where prosecutors and regulators may start looking for other ways to hold individuals accountable, even if they're not going to get invited and even if they're not going to get sued by the department. Well, Brandon, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to follow up with you directly on uh, any of the points you've raised in either this podcast or your um, article. Could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? Absolutely. So my email address is B as in Bravo, Essig, which is E-S as in Sam, S as in Sam, I-G, and that's at lightfootlaw.com, and lightfootball is L-I-G-H-T-F-O-O-T-L-A-W.com. Well, Brandon, I really wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me and also for really putting, uh, really wanted to thank you for putting this memo together. You, you've shown a light on things that many um, civil side uh, practitioners, uh, either law or compliance, are really not aware of and really put some, uh, some uh, flesh around what the Yates memo means for everyone, not just uh, the compliance professional or the uh, corporate defense counsel. So kudos. Well, you're welcome, and thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'll link to Brandon's article in the show notes. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast as it would help in our rankings and also get the word out about this top podcast in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.